So a couple months ago, I did something I shouldn't have done. Did something unbiblical, rather unbiblical, and not very historical either, and that is that I, I cut off most of my beard. I know you're sad about that. I trimmed, I mean, I didn't cut it all the way off. That would have been like, you know, walking away from the faith. I wouldn't do that. But I trimmed it way down with my trimmers. And I walked out. And all of a sudden, I see my little sweet Violet, six years old. She's looking at me, and she's like, who is this strange man in our house? Didn't even recognize me. And she was okay. You know, she heard my voice. I talked her off the ledge. Don't worry, baby. It will grow back. God won't be mad at me forever. But it took a couple minutes, actually a couple minutes for her to really kind of believe and recognize that this mostly shorn, sketchy-looking individual was actually her Abba father. It's amazing how a simple physical change can make us less recognizable. Now, on the positive side, this is what happens to me almost every day when I get home. In fact, I've started walking up the stairs louder because I know these years are short, so I can try to make sure this happens to me every day when I get home. Trouncing up the stairs, and I can usually hear one of my little girls, Aria or Violet, say, Daddy's home! And then it's like a dog trying to run on a wood floor. And they don't, they don't ask, how was your day? Are you tired? You're getting a little older now. How's your, you know, how's your back? Any creaking and groaning? They just jump right into your arms. Because they know you're their dad. They love you. They trust you. They want to see you. They recognize you for who you are. So here we are, almost at the end of Romans 8, almost at the end of this second movement in the book of Romans, and we'll, in a minute here, we'll kind of trace the argument through again to remind ourselves where we are, and this is a, a thick text. I mean, you know there's no way we can get through all of this right now, unless you want to do like a tent revival meeting and, you know, cater in dinner. So this is one that you need to cut out, you need to paste it on your fridge, you need to reread it, but the, the narrative arc, I think, is summed up in this, right? We're, we're given the Spirit of God, no longer slavery and fear. We are adopted sons and daughters. Even though all creation is groaning, King Jesus has promised to come and bring us into his family, and the Holy Spirit now helps us in our weaknesses. He will finish what he has started, he will get us home. That's kind of the narrative arc. I think it can be summed up in this. For those who are here this morning, will you recognize your father? Like little kids who hear that their daddy has come home and drop everything they're doing and don't care how he's doing, but jump into his arms and cling and trust, will you recognize your father? Because we are the children of God. Now, Romans 8 really gets into the good stuff, right? Romans 6 and 7, Paul's still kind of dealing with what is the law, how does the law relate to Christians, and then we get to last week. And I listened to John's sermon, and it was awesome. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But Paul can't help himself. He's Jewish. He knows the Old Testament well, probably memorized. And so he keeps bringing us back to the realities of Romans chapter 4. You are... In the family of Abraham, by faith you are justified, because Jesus is the true and better Israelite. He has done everything that needs to be done 
by the eldest son to bring you into the family of God. And now let's explore more of what that means. Like the Israelites, you have the freedom of the exodus. Like the children of God who wandered in the wilderness, you have the care and protection of the presence of God who won't leave you. And now he brings us to this glorious doctrine of adoption, sonship. So we, we're going to spend now three weeks really diving into this. And the, you know, the question is asked, why do we need to keep coming back to these same things? If, it's, if Paul is repeating himself, and by the way, he is, scholars agree, that in this tightly written, logical letter to real flesh and blood Christians in Rome, Paul is indeed repeating himself because he understands pedagogy. He knows what it means to teach. You need to tell him, then you need to tell him again, then you need to tell him what you told him, and then you need to go out and actually do it together. And that's how we learn. So from no condemnation, he brings us to the spirit of sonship. This is who you are now if you are in Christ. Not what you feel, not what you think about yourself, not what you felt about yourself this morning when you looked in the mirror, not the shame and brokenness of your past, not your ongoing disappointments, and certainly not the number in your bank account. But you are a child of God. Before we jump into kind of our two points, I want to say why I think this is amazing in two ways. The first is this. You just, again, we take it for granted, man. I do. I was raised enough in the church, and I went to enough wonderful you know, youth camps, and I've, you've read this stuff before, to just take for granted this idea that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would take us, servants and sinners, and bring us into his family. It offers up an opportunity to compare and contrast to other worldviews, to other religious belief systems, which we all have and all of our friends have. There's no escaping the fact that everyone believes and walks by faith in something and towards something. It's inevitable. Religion to me is the ultimate rat race. It's the ultimate do more, try harder, work harder, earn a little bit more, and you'll be good. Now, in Jewish theology, there was no formalized doctrine of adoption. There was nothing in Jewish canon law about that. If the parents passed away, the child went to be with their family. It was known. But in Greco-Roman law, things were quite a bit different. And so this whole sweet, you know, like, Oh, God loves you. He brings you into his family. Isn't, the, isn't that what all the gods do? Aren't all the gods super nice? And, you know, they're not capricious. They're not arbitrary. They're not superhero men writ large. They're all sweet. They all care about redemption. They all die for your sins. They're all there to just help you in your weakness and your brokenness and your shame and, and bring you into their little sweet family. Well, as one scholar put it, Mount Olympus was no orphanage. Okay, if you were doing good, good, maybe, if that's what the gods demanded of you that day. If you were doing good, good, great, and if not, you're in trouble. Because your status was always, and ultimately, the status of a servant. It's that beard again. You know what, though? It's worth it. Y'all can deal with a few pops for the beard. If you hear the pops, just start to pray. You know that's prayer time, okay? Your status was always that of a servant or a slave. There was always fear. Am I doing good enough? I mean, how was the status 
maintained before these lowercase g gods. It was by doing your job and doing it well enough such that there weren't the consequences imposed upon you of the deities who might be upset with you. And so that's one reason that the doctrine of adoption is amazing. We just, we got to pause and not be too Christian-y for a second. We got to dial back the Christianese and the church words and the bumper stickers and, you know, the pretty doilies with, you know, the scriptures. Right? Nothing wrong with doilies, by the way. But we got to dial that back and just say, look, historically, religiously, and especially in the ancient world, this was a radical idea. Caesar claimed to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And, and he would step over the bodies of the weak and the fatherless and the broken to make his way up to the glory of his throne. But the second part is more personal. And as we go forward with the doctrine of adoption, look, some of you have, have been a part of adoption or foster care. Some of you are adopted. Maybe you have a very visceral and real understanding of this truth. Some of you, not so much, but it's, it's real, and I want it to be real to us because the Scriptures always speak to us in our time, in our place, and in our needs. One of the things the world most needs, and we most need, look, even if you had a good earthly dad, and some of you did, some of you had great earthly dads, some of you didn't, some of you had awful earthly dads or none at all. Psychologists, secular psychologists have identified that one of our deepest needs is for the stable love of a good father. And, and we are all in some ways wounded by the imperfections of our own fathers. That doesn't mean we beat him up for it, but it's true. And we as fathers also wound. That's true because you are not the Christ. So one of our deepest needs is not only to be fully known and fully loved, but fully known and loved by one who is fatherly and strong, who can provide and protect and give his presence to us when the world, when the creation around us groans. I read something recently, I think it might have been in New York Times, Wall Street Journal, one of these. And you know, they're, they're always asking when these tragedies happen, when these injustices happen, is there anything we can relate causally? And be very careful with cause and effect in, you know, sociology and statistics. Okay, can we correlate anything? You know, when these tragedies happen, can we correlate any, any reasons, any causes to the effect? And of course, the answer is, it's extremely complicated. You got people that are over here politically, people that are over here politically. People that come from a lot, people that come from a little. It's very complicated, but this particular social scientist said, that one of the things that they are able to correlate with a high degree of probability is fatherlessness. So when you look out to the world and you see, pick your injustice. I know you people, I see you on Facebook, so I know what most years are. You've got this thing that, oh, it's so unjust, and it is. It is unjust. And Christians need to be the hands and feet of Jesus doing the justice of God in those places. But pick your injustice. The elephant in the room so often is fatherlessness. So do you see why this is so amazing? No matter what's your background, no matter what your wounds, no matter what, what brokenness is in your past or needs that were unmet, we are adopted sons and daughters of God. We are the children of God. 
And we need to recognize our Father. I think in our, our text, there's at least two keys to really understanding this passage. The first is that we need to recognize our Father in the reality of our sonship. And the second is we need to recognize our Father in the gifts and the glory of our sonship. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. First, to recognize our Father in the reality of our sonship, in the reality that we are the sons and daughters of God. Paul says we are identified. Our primary identity, without adjectives, is that we are by His Holy Spirit, although tempted by the flesh, no longer slaves but free. There has been now a new exodus. We are set free, and we are free to what? To not be in fear as slaves, but to be sons of God. There aren't a lot of examples of adoption in the Old Testament. There's pictures of it, but our kids this morning are going to study the Gospel Project. And here at Christ Church, you know that we believe that the entire Bible from A to Z points forward to to Jesus. You have shadows in the Old Testament that show us Christ, who is the substance. And so I came across this this week, and I think it's a great entry point for thinking about what does it mean? What's the reality of adoption? You all know what adoption is, right? You all understand how that works before a judge and what's conferred and how those things are done. But how do we understand it spiritually in our own lives? 2 Samuel chapter 9 tells the story of a young, broken man named Mephibosheth. I already, I already did it wrong. Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth. We don't preach on him very often for obvious reasons. Mephibosheth. He was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. And there's this beautiful story in 2 Samuel 9 where where David has won. He has victory. He's the king. He's defeated his enemies. He's thwarted the offense. And he's mourning because Saul was the Lord's anointed, but he's rejoicing. For now the kingdom of Israel is his and he can step into the place of leading God's people in God's presence. And he asks Ziba. Ziba was a servant in King Saul's house. He says, Ziba, is there there anyone left? Is there anyone left in Saul's house? Now, in the ancient Near East, if you were reading this, and I mean, it isn't very ancient because this is kind of how life works, your expectation right here would be, ah, I get it, David. Smart move. You're smart. Are there any living heirs? Is there any son running amok out there in hiding, trying to get away such that if they're still alive, when they get older, they're going to get their army together and it's going to come back to haunt you. Nice work, good going. You know, you read the ancient Near Eastern King War Manual. You know how this is done. Go find, I mean, you can't leave any sons alive of your enemy. And then David, because it's a picture of grace for us in Christ, scandalizes you know, scandalizes all, all the ideas of the entire ancient Near East and our, our own power and our own pleasure. And he says, no, it's, it's for the sake of Saul's son, Jonathan, my friend, that I want to do kindness. I want to do covenant love and mercy and protection to any who are left. And I'm sure everyone in David's court in that moment was stunned. Ziba says, there's one guy. And this is what makes the story so good. There's one guy left. 
And he's, he's not like you people. He's not strong and educated and smart and good looking and, you know, all of that. This Mephibosheth, I mean, he's, he's a real sinner. He's, he's really broken. He's really defeated. He's really alone. He's helpless and he's hopeless and he is in exile. We're told from the text that he's crippled. Both of his feet are lame. You know what that means? That means when the king comes to kill you because you're the other king's son, you can't run away. Not only is he fatherless, but he's totally hopeless. He has no family to protect him. They've all been eradicated in the war. And on top of that, he's in hiding. This is where the doctrine of, of our sonship and daughtership in Christ is so impactful because brothers and sisters, we're just like Mephibosheth. Because of sin, we're broken. We can't run. Because, because of our, our family line in Adam, there's no help for us in the law. And because of our own choices and our, and our own brokenness, there's, there's us in hiding. The text says that he has run to be exiled in a place called Lodabar. Literally, place of nothing. So can you imagine Mephibosheth? Alone, scared, fatherless, lame, unable to run, and now hiding and in exile in the place of nothing. All the powers and principalities of the world have not been enough. Not enough power, not enough pleasure to satisfy. He's alone. And it's into this story that David exercises his divine right as the king. And doesn't look upon Mephibosheth and go, oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're so lovely. Oh, you could be so helpful to me. But instead, he takes one who is broken and alone and lame and sets his love upon him. He shows him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And so we see here this, this two-pronged way in which the doctrine of your sonship, you're being known by God and loved by God and in his family is worked out. Because David invites Mephibosheth into his home. And again, he gives us two surprises. I can't, you know, I'm studying this stuff all week and so I'm nerding out on it, but I just can't underscore how many scholars are like, ah, we're nerds, wow, this is unbelievable. Unbelievable that David does this for this undeserving child of an enemy. Two things. In verse 9, David brings him in and before the royal court declares he is fully restored. So that's what your adoption means. Fully restored. Signed, sealed, delivered. The judge who has the power to do so has said, the past is gone, the new has come. You have a new name. You have a new family. You are part of a new people. You are fully restored. You don't come back into this house as a slave or a servant, having to work really hard to maintain your status. You come back in as a son, fully restored. Now look, if I tell my kids to clean their room, they obviously do it every time, because they know about my divine right in the home. No, if I tell my kids to clean their room, <clears throat> and they don't, it happens, because I kind of struggle to clean up my own room. And they don't, you know, what do I do? Okay, well, you don't get to work here anymore. You're a servant. 
You know, you fool me once, shame on you, but okay, you don't get to work here anymore. You didn't clean your room. You're going to go out and sleep outside in the tent until you can earn your way back into the bedroom. No. No, I mean, of course, there's, there's the reality of, okay, we got to talk about it. There might be some consequences, but when, when you're a slave, you, you keep your job, you maintain your status by work. When you're a son or a daughter, you have and maintain your status because you are the beloved child of your parents. And this is what it means for Mephibosheth to be fully restored, undeserving. It's not his family. It's not his people. It's not his bloodline. And David says, now you are mine. But it's more than that. This is what's so good about the gospel. He's not just fully restored and, hey, come hang out and you can have this little broom closet in the castle. No. We know that he's not a slave, but neither is he left in some perpetual state of waiting in the Davidic orphanage. The text says in verse 11, 2 Samuel chapter 9, that Mephibosheth will dine at the king's table. And I want you to remember all the medieval like movies you've seen or TV shows you've watched that kind of have that you know, medieval king thing going on. And there's always the big banquet scene. Well, there's one table, and that's where the king sits. And the only people that get to sit at the king's table, like, you have to be related to the king. It has to be proven that you're related to the king. And, you know, most of these kings had a few, like, side hustles. So they had kids that were, like, half theirs. You know this? They didn't get to sit at the table. Only if you were a documented, bloodline, divine right son could you sit at the table. And in verse 11, these words are incredible. David says, Mephibosheth will dine at the king's table and he will eat like a king's son. So not only fully restored from slave to free, but now free and invited to the food and the feast of the king himself. That's what the reality of our sonship is. And this is good news because you and me, man, we, we struggle, maybe not to believe it, but to do it. I read a story about a week ago, and, you know, trigger warning for those of you who think younger people can be entitled. It's a story about a young man, 22 years old in India, comes from a family of means, and his parents blessed him. He asked for his birthday for a car, and so they gave this young 22-year-old man a BMW for his birthday. He was so angry and incensed that he took the car immediately and drove it into a lake. And when the news media interviewed him, sir, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? His response was this, they knew I wanted a Jaguar. By the way, to the proportion that you were just like, whoa, by that story, to that proportion, that's how much you need to understand that that's us. If the knee-jerk reaction to your heart right now was, how could he? You are the man. I am the man. That's us, folks. We have everything in Christ. He is the first fruits of the new creation. He's our elder brother. We have every gift. We have full inheritance. We have it all. And so often we look at what God's given. And we drive it into the lake. And we say, I wanted a Jaguar instead. So not only is the reality of our sonship that, that Jesus is our Savior and Rescuer and Redeemer, but isn't it good news 
that he is our sustainer as well. That being brought into the family of God as a son or daughter isn't just a one time you're brought in by grace and now it's conditional. You're brought in by grace and you are sustained by grace. And yes, we have a little bit of that brattiness in all of us. But the good news is God is working it out. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So that's the reality of our sonship. Now the glory or the gifts of our sonship. Paul expands on this doctrine. He makes it practical. Practical not only for our own assurance of the future, but the groaning we experience in the present. So first of all, our future. In the Jewish way of things, and everyone knew this, everyone in the Roman church knew this, the firstborn son got everything. This idea of primogeniture. I'm not saying it's fair. Life's not fair. Look, I'm an only child, so as the oldest son, I get everything, but as the youngest son, I get nothing. It's very difficult to live like this, people. Now, the older brother gets it all, and the older brother can do with it all what he wants. And if the older brother judges the the younger brothers to be unfit or unworthy of stewarding the father's resources that he worked so hard to procure, they can be shut out. And there's no recourse. There's There's no appeals court. It is finished. And so when we think about our inheritance, that we are heirs with Christ, when you think about what Jesus has given up to give us that, consider, Jesus not only takes all our sin, but he gives us all his righteousness. He not only takes our all, but he shares his all with us. And you know when this is really important? When you're not feeling it when you're not feeling very adopted, when you're not very, feeling very son or daughtery. Now, I'm going to confess something to you guys because I like to do that. Cheaper than paying for a counselor. I get all of you at once. <laughs> this week, I didn't feel very adopted Every time I'm studying the text, God's like, I have to wrestle with it. And sometimes it's more painful than others. And now I'm feeling extra guilty because not only am I not feeling very adopted, very son-like, God feels distant. I feel weird and malaise and blah, and you've all had days and weeks like that, but I just got away for a vacation last week. So now compounded with how I'm feeling is the guilt of, you shouldn't be feeling that way. Because you're a pastor, you got away for three and a half days, you should be fully rested and restored for the rest of your life. (laughs) I'm sitting here like, yeah, this is great, adoption, sonship. I mean, John got the best text in Romans last week. This is the second best text, and I'm not feeling it. And I'm not preaching, I got to feel it. No, 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 no. That's the beauty of the objective finished work of Christ and the objective finished declaration over you that you are his, that you have a new name. I uncovered this email from a friend recently. He was a friend that I reconnected with at a concert a couple nights ago. We used to go to church together. We were in a community group. I I recovered this email thread because I was doing a weird search on Gmail and This is from 2011, and he had written us, some other men in his community group, about, hey, will you pray for me? Will you pray for my life and my wife and marriage and normal stuff? And I'm looking at what we all said 11 years ago, how we were all kind of leaning into him on the gospel. And I'm thinking to myself last night as I'm in bed, and that was 2011. So weird to think, oh, 
think back on when I wasn't a perfect husband. Those days are far gone. And I looked over and Caitlin's looking at me like, mm-hmm. no, I mean, this was eight years ago and he's wrestling with life and family and marriage and faith. And here we are eight years later and guess what? We're still in it. Guess what? We're still in it. We're being conformed to the image of God. We're being transformed into the glory of Christ, but we're still in it. We're still wrestling. But here's the beauty of our future gift and glory as sons of God. Yeah, you're still in it, but so is he. So is he. You're still in it. You look at eight eight years ago emails. There's been some improvement, but now there's new challenges, new stresses, a mortgage, another kid, whatever. You're still in it, but so is he. And so the gift and the glory of our sonship is that God is faithful and will be faithful. He didn't, who did not spare his only son. Will he not be faithful to bring to completion the good work he has started in you? Now, that news for the future is great, but it's so important for our present because the creation is groaning. Again, I'm, I'm guessing that in the last couple days you've turned on the news. The creation is groaning. There's so many things that we know are unjust and we want to be the justice of God, we feel so helpless. So help us. I was talking to uh, someone recently uh, who works at Santa Fe Public Schools and God bless you teachers for taking our kids back. Hallelujah. Mm, thank you, teachers. I was talking to one of the leaders uh, at Aria's school and she was just saying, she goes, yeah, you know, it's just pray for our kids because they, they hear the news sometimes too. And they're more affected by these things they hear and see in the news than you would think. And it's like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The creation is groaning and we're groaning. Your suffering is real. The things you're going through today, which is why Romans 8.28 isn't just some fancy little, you know, bumper sticker for you to add to the 19 others on the back of your Subaru. It's not, it's not a self-help saying. Do you know that? God works for the good in all things. It's completely in the context of the groaning creation and the Spirit interceding for us in our weaknesses. It's not a pithy one-liner. It's a reminder that in our present suffering, the King has not left you, He has not abandoned you, He is not absent. And the doctrine of our sonship has practical implications for what that means for us now. I want to end with an extended quote. That's pastor speak for... A long quote. It's by Whitney Wallard. Uh, she's an author, and uh, she, uh, she wrote this really wonderful article. How does the work of Christ, how does the sonship that we have make a real difference in our lives? And she struggles with a, an ongoing chronic illness. And before you, you know, Google her and give her your advice, she's tried it all. She's done some essential oils. She's been to the chiropractor. She's cut out gluten. She's tried all the things, okay? But she still suffers in a debilitating way with chronic Lyme disease. And so she writes from this place of ongoing suffering, how does it make a difference? Let me give you some examples, she says. When I'm bedridden and plagued by guilt, Christ's work to adopt me into God's family tells me that he has already borne all the guilt and wrath of God for my sin. So even in my weakness, there's no longer any sacrifice to make. 
that could be more acceptable to God. Simply put, God is pleased with me even when I can't get out of bed. I am his child. Through Christ, I can rest and heal beneath his divine smile. This also assures me that the penalty of my sin has been paid. Therefore, the suffering I experience is not punishment for something I've done. Romans 8.1 I may not know all the ways God is using my pain. Who can understand why we suffer the way we do? But I do know that he's not using it to punish me. I am his child. I could give manifold examples of how the saving life and death of Jesus undergirds and sustains my suffering. In fact, I wrote many of them down on a whiteboard that I keep next to my desk. I am not guilty, Romans 3, 6, and 8. I am not cursed, Galatians 3. I am not defeated, Colossians 2, Hebrews 2. I am not crushed, Isaiah 53, 2 Corinthians 4. I am never forsaken, Mark 15, Hebrews 13. I am not unclean, 2 Corinthians 5. And I am never without hope, even on the hard days, Romans 5 and Romans 8. Now hear me, these truths don't invalidate or minimize my real daily experience of pain, not at all. Nor are they some kind of magical incantation or quick fix. I still had to ice my ankles and put on compression gloves in addition to my daily regimen of med and detox so I could even write this morning. I'm hurting from head to toe. That's real, but they anchor me so that I don't become truly lost when I'm adrift in a sea of circumstances and symptoms. That's what I mean when I speak about Christ's work adopting us into the family of God being the only solid ground I have to stand on. It's the only thing that can undergird the groaning of my current reality, no matter what I face. I can walk, and yes, even sometimes crawl, into every day with the unshakable hope that I have been met as a daughter in the perfect love of Christ. And all this is true and becoming true. He is making all things new. So as we hear these words, let us remember to recognize the love of our Father and never forget, never forget you are children of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this good news that you, King Jesus, have come to bring the covenant justice and righteousness of God to bear upon the world you are the true and perfect Israelite so that now we are in God's family by faith alone. And like Mephibosheth, we are fully restored. We are found in our place of nothing. We are found in our feet that cannot walk. In our family that is absent, we are found and we are fully restored and then brought to the feast of your table. So as we prepare our hearts for this table through this song, would you remind us that we are your children. Would you help us to recognize your face, our Father, in the face of your Son, our Christ. Amen.